promises. Took matters into their own hands. It's easy to wait for a little while. Well, I know us Americans have forgot how to do that. The Burger King's got to be done in five minutes, but. But you know, if we have our roll-ups every once in a while, it's easy to wait for a little while. But when the days roll on, the weeks, the months, and the years, and the decades, waiting gets hard. But he's waiting, he's coming for those that are waiting in faith. That whether he comes today or tomorrow, or whether we never live to see it, we believe that it's coming. That the promises of God are yea and they are amen. And no matter how long we have to wait, we're going to wait. Because the Lord is faithful. His promises are true. Someday, someday, I want to be found having faith when the Lord comes. But aren't you glad to know that the promises of God never fail? We want our ushers to come, give you the opportunity to give your tithe and offering unto the Lord, give you the opportunity to leave here blessed. Amen. And you give it to the Lord as God has blessed you and He has blessed all of us. Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you'd like to turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 21. For those of you that are turning there, I'd like to say I appreciate the prayers this week for Campbell and I to get through whatever it was that got us. Just pray that the Lord will continue to work in that, that way. It's, it's one of those things that sickness lets go of you, but it hangs around for a while, so just pray that the Lord will continue to. Just touch the screen once. Ask the Lord to put his hands on everybody that's in my cars tomorrow. To go north to youth camp. And God will just keep us all from not being well. And nobody wants to get there and get sick and have, have troubles. So let's just pray. God will do in the youth camp. But our kids need this. So let's pray. God will just bless them. Amen. Luke chapter 21. I'll read just, just three verses, beginning there in verse 5, and then I'll just read one verse in Matthew chapter 16. The Bible says, this is, this is where Jesus is there communicating with his people. And verse 5 says, and some spake, as people like us, some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said. As for these things which ye behold, they're, they're standing around talking about how beautiful the temple is, how, how wonderful the church is. And he said, as for these things which you behold, the days will come in which there shall not be left one stone upon another. It shall not be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? For a people that believed that it was not even possible to rightly serve God without the temple being standing. The man that is looking at them and saying, hey, in a little while, not one of these stones will be left on top of another. 
They looked at him and said, Master, tell us when these things are going to happen. When shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? Lord, when is our church, when is this temple going to be turned in? Matthew chapter 16, we find immediately following this great profession of faith by the Apostle Peter, that he knew who Jesus was, that you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. The Lord tells him how blessed he is to know such a thing that only God revealed it to him. Then in verse 18 he says, And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. No matter what, no matter what he tries, no matter what he does, no matter how bad it ever gets, God said, Peter, my church will never be defeated. It will never be destroyed. Not even hell can bring it down. I'm going to preach to you for a little while today about the last church standing. Would you lift up your hands and voices and worship God with me? Lord Jesus, we love you. We worship you. We give you glory because you are God. And you are God alone and only you are worthy of our praise. Lord, we're asking you, Jesus. Lord, let your spirit stay in this house. Let your glory fill this place. Lord, change us and transform us by your mighty power that is always in work in the church. Lord, let your will be done. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated and thank you for standing for God's Word. Amen. I can stand before you today and I think just about all of you would echo my words in that I want to be a part of the church. I want to be a part of the church of the living God. I'm not talking about some organization that I signed up and pay some dues and and I get a membership card and a certificate to put on the wall. I'm not concerned about stuff like that. What I want to be a part of is the body of Christ. I want to be a part of the one church that God created all the way back in the book of Acts chapter 2. And he said, until I come, no matter what hell tries, my church will always stand. I want to be a part church. Now, this passage in the book of Luke chapter 21, it was startling to say the least to the Jewish people that he was talking to. I mentioned just a moment ago, but he's believed even to this day that there are a lot of commandments in the Old Testament that they cannot be obeyed because they relate to things that are done in the tabernacle or in the temple. And so to a people whose desire is to make sure that they obey all the commandments of God, they cannot even have the fullness of their relationship with their God without that temple. It's the place where the sacrifice 
sacrifices were laid on the altar. It's the place where the showbread was baked and put in, in the presence of God. It's the place where the sweet aroma of incense would rise up. And year after year, the Spirit of God would come down in the house and push their sins away. It was everything to them. I can't recall the person that mentioned it, but it has been said before that the center of the universe is the earth, and the center of the earth is Israel, and the center of Israel is Jerusalem, and the center of Jerusalem is the temple. If you don't believe me, you might should read the news a little bit every once in a while. Because despite the fact that it's a little known, it's a little nation about the size of New Jersey, it commands the headlines every single day that we live. For centuries, men and armies and nations have fought over that little spit of bread. Why? Because it belongs to God. Because he reserved it to himself. Because he said, I'm going to choose and I'm going to put my name there and I'm never going to remove it. He couldn't have said anything besides I am God that would have startled them more. Then in just a little while, this glorious temple that you're bragging about how beautiful it is will be leveled to the ground. And in just a little while, about 45 years or so later, in 70 AD, Rome would roll in and they would do just that. They would burn the city. They would roll it, they would level it to the ground. And the Lord's prophecy came to pass. Because after the city was set on fire and burned, history tells us that it was so hot that the gold that was in the temple melted and ran down into the cracks of the rocks. And when the Roman general saw that that gold was down in the cracks of the rocks, he ordered his army to dig up every single one to scrape the gold out. And so the Lord's prophecy comes to pass. Not one stone remained Upon everything was torn down and everything was dug up. But just as Jesus often did when he talked about something here and now, I know that happened a little bit later, but it happened in their generation. It happened in their day. When he talked about something that was in the here and now, he was also talking about things that were going to come later. I mean, this isn't, this isn't new to us. How many, how many promises in the Old Testament that had to do with geography? How many promises in the Old Testament that had to do with physical things do we see coming to a new spiritual revelation in the New Testament? We understand those things. We understand promises of God that were made to, 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 to men and to dirt come to pass in the Holy Ghost in the New Testament church. So it's not a novel concept that the Lord would be talking about more than just that building. And so as the Lord begins to talk about the signs of the day and, and the circumstances that would surround when the Roman armies would roll in in AD 70 and tear down the, the church building, he also says in verse 24 of the same chapter, they shall fall by the edge of the sword, shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down to the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That's what we're living in. He said when they come in and they level this city, they're going to haul all you folks away captive. All of my people are going to be scattered into the ends of the earth. And it's going to stay that way until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. 
verse 25. So now he's talking about that day. He's not talking about just 70 AD. He's not talking about just what they would see before they draw their last breath. But he's talking about the last days. Yeah. And he says, and there shall be signs of the sun and the moon and the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the seas and the waves roaring. All of these things didn't happen in 70 AD. But they're going to happen. Men's heart failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's what we're waiting for. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption Draweth nigh. How many are there in the house whose heads have been turned heavenward the past little while? How many of those who are in this place today have in their hearts and their minds come quickly, Lord Jesus? It says he's speaking to them parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees, when they now shoot forth, you see and you know of your own selves that summer is now at hand. So likewise, when you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh in hand. Folks, just read the news. The kingdom of God is nigh in hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Amen. Now, most of us know by this point what he's talking about. He's not talking about the temple, temple being destroyed. He's talking about the last days. He's talking about the days of the Lord. He's talking about when our opportunity to be saved draws to the close. He's talking about all that fantastical stuff that we read about. Where? The book of Revelation. Now, I know it started in the book of Daniel. There are a couple of other prophets in the Old Testament that made mention of these things too. But, but it would be the book of Revelation. It would be the Apostle John that would see visions of God and, and be in his presence and begin writing things down a, a, a long while after Jesus died. He was the oldest of the prophets. By the time he died, all the rest of them were dead. And it would be at that point that the fullness of what God was going to do in the last days would be written down. When one apostle would get a glimpse of glory and he would begin to see things that he didn't even have adequate words to write down and explain what he saw. He would see what would take place in the last days. We find in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, very opening of that book, the Apostle John writes, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. That ought to be enough to know the Lord's coming soon. It's been almost 2,000 years that John wrote down shortly come to pass. And he sent, signified by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw, blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Now, the book of Revelation is a pretty amazing book. 
It is the only book of the Bible that a blessing is specifically promised to the man that reads it. Oh, we know we're blessed by reading the entire counsel of the Word of God. But this one right in chapter 1 says, if you'll just read it, I'll bless you. There's something else about this that's interesting as well. The next verse says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come from the seven spirits which are before his throne. So not only do we, we have told to us here what he's going to be talking about, but we also know who he's talking to. He's talking to the churches. He's talking to those that are Holy Ghost filled and water baptized and those that have heaven on their mind. But here's what's so interesting about this to me. This book opens up and says, Blessed is the man that reads it. This is a prophecy about all the things that are going to happen in the last days. And it's specifically written to be sent and to be read in the churches. And yet in just a couple of chapters or so, the church is strikingly absent. I mean, close to nothing happens. We're not there anymore. Verse 19 in that same chapter says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in thy right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So, where is this preacher going with this? And I've already told you the Revelation is a pretty interesting book. I mean, ever since John wrote what he saw, men have been trying their best to interpret it. Men are still arguing over the interpretation of this book. Men argue over what all of its images and what all of its shadows and what all of its symbolism means. They argue even over whether it's all already come to pass or not or whether all of it's still yet to come in the future. But before you even get to all the flashy stuff, you know, the, the Antichrist and the beast and, and the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and, and the ever infamous battle of Armageddon that we all know about, and even Hollywood's jumped in the bucket and they wrote books and made movies about it. Although if you're if you're looking to those for your scripture, you're going to be in a mess. Before you can get to all that. Before you can sit down and go pick out 10 or 20 of your favorite commentaries and try to start slicing and dicing and coming to a better understanding of what John and the Lord through John wanted us to be able to see and to understand, you've got to get past the next couple of chapters. Before you ever get to all that, before you ever get to all the dark stuff, and before you ever get to the great hope that the Lord coming at the end, you've got to get past the next two chapters. Because John wasn't just writing about the things that were going to come after. But he said, I also want you to write about what is right now. And John began writing things to the church. 
before the church could ever come to an understanding of the fullness of the revelation of God to all the nations of the Gentiles, to the Jewish people, how he's going to bring all this stuff together at the end, how he's going to come back with ten thousands of his saints and set up his kingdom for a thousand years before eternity ever begins for you and I. We've got to get through what the Lord had to say to the church right then and right now. You see, we study the book of Revelation, and all we can be inch for it, and we love it when a preacher shows up and says we're going to talk about prophecy for a while. I love it myself. I can read it. I can listen to it all day long. But I've also come to tell you, that prophecy isn't going to do you one iota of good if you don't get through the message to the church. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. John begins to write, Because there are seven churches, the Lord said, that I want you to write to. I've got something to say to seven churches in Asia. Verse 1 says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Before anybody gets scared and worried, I'm not preaching all seven churches today. But I am going to preach all seven churches. Just not today. We know the context. We know where the church is at. It was in Ephesus. There's no mystery about who he's talking to. The Ephesian church has a letter written to it in the New Testament and is well accounted for in historical record. We know who he's talking about. It was a literal, physical church that existed in that day. And we know who's talking. We know who's writing. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself that has to say what was about to be said. And John was writing a letter, not that it was supposed to be stuck in a bottle and put out in the ocean, and somebody was going to find it 4,000 years later. It was a letter that when he got done, he was going to proverbially put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and send it to Ephesus. So we're talking about the current state of affairs in the Ephesian church. Now, as an aside, for those that have read and and study the book of Revelation in the past, there are those that, that believe that these letters to the churches, they apply prophetically to different things that the church would face and go through across the ages, from John's day until the last day. And it's really not hard to see that at all in Scripture because God often speaks of the present and the future at the same time. If for no other reason, but humans don't learn things very well. History has a way of repeating. But it's also because he knows the end from the beginning. But it's even easier to see that these letters to the churches apply to more than just him. Because all throughout the New Testament we find letters to churches that were written to that church in that day, to that body of believers. The apostles were already writing to churches, but they weren't just writing for them to read it, put it in the paper, shred it, remove all. It was meant to give us instruction now. We're still reading the letters of the Apostle Paul and the doctrine that he laid out in those for us to learn how to be the church. Long story short, every one of these messages to these seven churches are critically important to us. To 
to this church, yeah. to 2021 and the state of affairs in the world in which we live, the message is still true. The letter is still relevant. And God still wants his church to know what he's about to say. Verse 2, he begins to talk. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou cannot bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for thy name's sake have labored and hast not fainted. Now, this all starts out pretty well. This starts out with commendations to the Master. I mean, the Lord's handed out ribbons at this point. I mean, everybody wants to hear the Lord say, well done. Everybody on Judgment Day wants, you know, we, we don't want to go through what Job went through, but we sure want him to brag on us like he bragged on Job. You know, the devil was looking for a poster child. You know, he was looking for a first-round draft pick. And, you know, can you consider Job? There ain't nobody shiny as him. There ain't nobody as, as humble as him. There's nobody that loves to be like Job. Don't mess with him for a while. Everybody wants the Lord to say, well done, when he looks down at us. But we also see here, simply by reading this, we see the things that God pays attention to. God took note of this. There are seven things that are listed here. There's, there's patience. We already saw about that just a little while ago. They, they refused to accept those that were evil. It don't mean evil folks can't come to the doors of the church. They just can't stay there in the church and stay evil. We either got to get them saved or we got to run them out. One or the other. That's the truth. They're exposed to false apostles. You're in the truth long enough, false prophets are going to show up. And you don't have to deal with it. Not everybody that stands behind a pulpit preaches the right message. They, they carry burdens. Anybody that thought we were just going to show up and sit in some air conditioning and never get your hands dirty, you're going to the wrong church. They carry burdens. They, they had patience for the name of the Lord. They, they, they were not going to back down on who Jesus is. And they labored. And they have not fainted. Seven things that God just starts. You're doing a great job. All these things are going well. Every when I pull out the report card for the church, you, you, you've gotten check marks in all the boxes. But... The next verse says, nevertheless, anybody ever been to a parent-teacher conference and that well-trained teacher that's supposed to build up first says, your child is engaged and, and really enjoys being here and, and is knocking it out of the park in English class, nevertheless, let's talk about math. He says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Because thou hast left thy first love. What is that? If it's the one thing that will make all the other things moot, if it's the one thing that no matter how many check marks are on the report card, when I get to the bottom, this grade is going to separate it all. I want to make sure that I don't leave it 
that it is present in the church. So what is our first love and where did they leave it? Interesting, the scripture says that they left it, not that they lost it. We don't mean to lose anything. You don't mean to be unable to find your car keys when it's time to head to church. You just lost them. But when you leave something, it's a choice. I got in the car and left you behind because you were late. Somewhere along the way, somebody, somewhere along the way, this church made a choice to take, to keep taking some things with them, but leaving something behind. I don't know how long it was, whether it was days or weeks or months or years, but somewhere along the way, there was a choice. Hey, we've got all these seven things. Let's keep talking these things with us. Somebody left something behind. And unfortunately, it was the most important thing. What is our first love? Now, what is it in a natural sense? We learn so much about God through natural relationships. Don't we have first love somewhere in our life? If it ain't the one you're married to, just keep the mouth shut. But everybody had a first love somewhere along the way. Do you remember those early days in that relationship, or even the relationship with the one you're with now? They weren't the first. You remember those early days? You know, those butterflies in the belly days. Those days when their hand reached over there and kind of brushed up against yours. You just got a chill. How do marriages? How do relationships fall apart? Is it not when we stop doing the things we used to do? Marriages don't fail when we don't think they can do anything wrong. Marriages don't fail when you live every waking moment just trying to get back to where they're at and see them again. Marriages don't fail. When we pour every ounce of energy into making that relationship great, we're working all week long just so we can go buy that one thing we know is going to bring a smile on their face. Marriages don't fail when you're doing all that. Marriages fail when we don't. They fail when we don't tell them we love them anymore. They fail when we focus on things we don't like instead of focusing on the things that we do. They fail when for some reason in this world, whether it's your fault, their fault, both your fault, or nobody's fault, we decided somewhere along the way, I'm not going to do the things that I used to do. I got a newsflash for somebody here this morning. Love is not a feeling. I don't care how long they sing the old song. It's not a loving feeling that you lost. Love is an action. Love is a conscious choice to do something. It's not butterflies in the belly. It's not chills up your spine because they reached over and they took your hand. It was a decision that you made that said, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, 
measure of health. I'm going to love you. What does that mean? That means I'm going to do something. I'm going to come home every night to you. I'm going to work every day for you. I'm going to look you in the eyes, and even when I don't see you like it, I'm going to say, I still love you. Amen. It's interesting that the one that got this great revelation was the same Apostle John that wrote the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and also the Gospel of John. But in 1st John chapter 4, those of you that have hung around the church for a little while in your life know that this is kind of famously called the love chapter, because that's what he's talking about. 1st John chapter 4, verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God. For God is love. But you don't stop there. Because we might start thinking it's a feeling. That's all we read. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son to the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God didn't love us because we were worth loving. God didn't love us because we sweet talked him when he got here. We rejected him. We spat on him. We beat him. We nailed him to a cross. We killed him. And then even after he rose again, most of humanity refused to believe in him. Love was shown when God looked down at this mess of humanity and said, I'm going to die anyway. Amen. I'm going to come down there and shed my blood and suffer for them because I love them. Amen. Love is not a feeling. Our first love is not just, oh, it feels great when I walk in the house of God. Love is the choice that we make of what we have made up in our minds. I will do until I draw my last Love it. God so loved us, we are also to love one another. Look at this. Verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect. It's the opening, it's the opening letter to the seven churches. And he's talking about love. But that same apostle John had already written, Herein is our love made perfect. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. I'm going to tell you, whenever that letter got read to the Ephesians, they weren't anybody standing up arguing back with God. Right. When they got confronted with the cold, hard truth, they knew what was on the inside. They knew what they were doing and what they were not doing. You don't have boldness when you know you're guilty. You've got boldness when you know that God's love is moving inside of you. And when you walk into that prayer closet, there's no shadow of a doubt of your mind or God's who you love and where you're going. Amen. Think about this. If I only pray when I'm broke, I don't love God. I love money. If I only pray to get a message to preach, I don't love God. I love preaching. If I only pray when I'm 
sick. I don't love God. I love my body. If I only pray when my marriage is in trouble, I don't love God. I love companionship. If I only pray when I need a job, I don't really love God. I just love financial security. If I only pray when my mind is in torment, I don't love God. I love peace. If I only pray when I've sinned, some folks only pray when they repent. If I only talk to God when I've sinned, I don't really love God. I just don't want to go to hell. But, if I get up in the morning, and I just want to be with him, if I walk throughout my day, and I just want to tell him about it, if it don't even really matter to me whether he pays the bill or not, or whether he heals my body or not, or whether he fixes the mess that I've made in my family, even if he don't do anything for me, I still want to be in his presence. I still want to hear his voice. I still want to talk to him. If that's true, then I'm going to show up and I'm going to lift up my voice and I'm going to live for God for no other reason than because I love him. Amen. You'll never make it to heaven just being scared of hell. But if you'll fall in love with Jesus, there's no hell, there's no high water. If you ever come into your life, that can turn you away from him because you love him. Amen. Why would a man die to save his children because he loves him? What are we willing to do for God? So, back to chapter 2, Revelation. The remedy is this. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Lord said, You did have it. You did fall in love with me. You did the things that more than anything else I wanted you to do. But somewhere, somehow, for some reason, you stopped. And so the answer is, you've got to go back. You've got to remember, wherever it was that you fell, wherever it was that you left it, and you've got to go back and get it. Because if you don't, I'm going to come, and I'm going to remove my candlestick out of his place. Now I want to preach this a little bit longer right here. Because up until this point, I, at least I hope so, you probably felt a little bit of conviction of your own self. And I pray it like I ought to pray. And I worship it like I ought to worship. You ain't felt any conviction. You either got it all right or you're not listening. There should have been some conviction bubbling up on the inside. God, do I love you as much as I should? Do I give all of myself to you as I should? But this message was not specifically to individuals per se. It was to the church. 
the body of believers. You know, it wasn't just two or three of those hypocrites that sit on this pew or that. It was the church that was standing in the position of having God come and take away his spirit. Church, if you care anything about God, if you care anything about heaven, this ought to wake you up this morning. We've got to make sure that we've got the essential ingredients to make sure that God's Spirit is in this church. Because I've come to tell you, it's not because we put apostolic on the sign. Amen. It's not because we wear godly clothes. It's not even because we baptize in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's going to be when we are absolutely head over heels in love with God. If every fiber of our being says, God, I just want to do, I just want to be what you want. Amen. But let me ask you a question. Do you feel that the church Exactly where it ought to be. When you think back to the times you thought about the Lord's coming, and preachers got up and preached about that great end time revival and the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, and I've come to tell you there's parts of this world that are having end time revival and they're having outpouring of the Holy Ghost. But I want to make this just a little bit sobering because you and I are living here in the United States of America. Do you and I feel like the church is engaged with the power of God like it ought to be? Because if not, somewhere along the way, we let something go. We left something behind. And when God comes, He's looking for it. I'm going to try to be nice, but I'm in that middle age part of life. Too old to be young. Too young to be old. So I got a perspective on both ends, both sides of the hill. I don't have a problem with people feeling like the church is not what it used to be or the church is not what it ought to be because I feel the same way. But I do have a problem with those that point the finger in the wrong direction. I've had about all I can stand. But folks acting like we're not having a revival because we sang a song that was written in this decade versus that decade. Amen. I don't want to hear anything about we're suing we don't have a revival because we're wearing brown shoes to church instead of black shoes to church. Or because we change the order of the service. I'm not saying throw all tradition out the window. I'm not saying there are things about what we do that are important. But I've come to tell you, don't be barking up my tree about why we're not having a revival until our prayer life is what it used to be.
didn't drift with anointing at all. Because we've learned and we've studied. And all that is good and right and is biblical. I wish I had made some different choices in life and maybe had the opportunity to have a little bit more theological education. But I've come to tell you, you can go to Bible school for 25 years. If you don't pray, and if you don't touch God, I'm not really all that interested in sitting in the church. Amen. Because my Bible tells me, and I heard it said one time, that God using foolish and ignorant men was not an endorsement of foolishness and ignorance. But at the same time, if the lies of this world won't touch God, then God will take whoever loves Him. If you don't love Him, understand it. He'll take that fisherman off the boat and say, You will stand behind that basket and tell them what they say of the Lord. I'm here to tell you, whatever it might be in your life and mine, whatever it might be in the church, if it's not the same as it once was, if it don't feel like it once felt, if God's not moving like He once moved, we better remember what it was be let down, and we better go and get it. Because your favorite show is on. Don't tell me you can't be in revival because of 
name. Don't tell me you can't make it to church. The few times we open the doors because the money's got to go in the bank. I serve the God that wants rain down there from heaven. We need to be in the house of God on fire and in love with God because He will come and take His spirit from us. God forbid that we ever have a well-oiled apostolic machine that's faithful to the book, doesn't tolerate false doctrine, does great works for the kingdom of God, and yet God has something against us. Why comes? Because this this last thing in closing, this last thing was eye-opening to me. Where I started you at in Luke 41 is where I'm taking you back to. Because we started in verse 5, where the people were having this conversation about how glorious the temple was. And the Lord began to tell them that the temple soon would be gone. And he took that opportunity to start telling them about the last days. <laughs> but what started the whole conversation anyway? Verse 1. It says, and he looked up, Jesus looked up, and saw the rich men. Casting their gifts into the treasure. And he saw also a poor, a certain poor widow, casting in thither two bites. Pities. Nothing. And he said, Of a truth I say unto you, that this poor widow had cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast in into the offerings of God. But she of her penury hath cast in all the living that she had. This whole conversation, this whole revelation started. God drew their attention to the fact that no matter how much it might look like, you're giving God what's convenient to you. It's not what He wants. It's the United States of America. We live in the Bible Belt. It's convenient to go to church. We're not persecuted. We're not made fun of. It might change one day, but it's all right right now. You can go to church on Sunday morning, somebody pat you on the back and work. Why? Because they go too. People give the offering. People give money to the church. People give their time and their energy. 
when it's convenient? Nobody loves somebody. You'll do what's not convenient. There are things you'll do for acquaintances that I really don't have the time to do that for you tomorrow. But if the one you love asks the question, yes, honey, how can you do it? When that child calls you in the middle of the night because they're in trouble, you'll get out of your bed and you'll put your clothes on and you'll drive them where they're at because you love them. But I want to ask you today, will you do that for God? Will you be willing to worship God when you don't feel like it? Will you come to church when it's not convenient? Will you give when you feel like you don't have to give? Will you lay aside everything else at the foot of the one you love? Because if the answer is no, he said it's not enough. He's already told his church to stand. I want you to love me with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. If it's not all, he doesn't want any of it. It doesn't matter what we do for him if we fall out of love with him. It doesn't matter how much I give to the church if I don't love God. These altars are open. If you left it somewhere, Come back and get it. If you feel like the church has left it somewhere, come get in this altar. And let's touch God as a church. God, let us find it. Let us go back and pick it up. Lord, help me to pray like I want to pray. Help me to fast like I used to fast. Help me to worship like I want to worship.